Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jonathan All. Today we go back in time about 1,000 years to learn more about what life was like for the Mississippian people who called our region home so long ago. Joining me in the studio is Gail Fritz, Professor Emerita of Anthropology at Washington University. She's also the author of the new book, Feeding Cahokia, Early Agriculture in the North American Heartland. Professor Fritz, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for the invitation. If you'd like to join in on the conversation or if you have questions, you may call us at 314-382-8255. That's 314-382-TALK. You can also send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org or tweet us at stlonair. Professor Fritz, um, the uh, the thing that struck me about this, and there's, you covered a lot of things in this book, but... At the height of the population, Cahokia Mounds, there were 40,000 people or so there. How did they feed all that people? And that seems to be a, lo- a lot of what you were able to discover through your research. Yes, well, we have to credit the amazingly fertile and uh, large expanses of, of soil, of prime ag- agricultural soil in the American Bottom area surrounding Cahokia Mounds. And we also have to give a lot of credit to the farmers. They were very skilled, and they had a, um, a number of of extremely productive and nutritious crops in their in their um, arsenal. Okay, there's a couple things in there. Let's start with farming practices because um, when you know in pre-Columbian North America, um, obviously there's a lot of agriculture that went on, on. But but when Western when Europeans came here, they dramatically changed the way the land was farmed. So how did they do it back then, and why did it work so well? Well, they had access to the prime soils all over the place. Nothing had been taken away from them by Europeans yet for plantations or for for their own farms. So they had um, access to all of the the varieties of soil. And I think that one of the things that they did was to plant different crops in different um, soil regimes, different wetness regimes. Some were adapted for uh, drier and and perfectly well-drained soils, and some were adapted for um, soils that were, were more moist. So they, they weren't restricted um, in the way that, that uh, Native Americans became after, after European invasion. Do, do, we, do, we have, do, do we have a sense, did they do crop rotation? Um, they had some early season and some late season crops, and even among the single most important crop at contact, which um, had only gained its status in the last uh, several hundred years, and that was corn or, or, or Indian corn or maize. But yes, even uh, and even within the maize species, there were some shorter uh, early ripening and later ripening maize that they could do some kind of a, um, a sequencing. But uh, for, crota- for crop rotation, yes, they could also move around within fields and let some of the plots rest if, if need be. There's some question about how often they actually had to, to do that given their, their practices. So uh, for most people in, in modern society, when they think of a farm, they think of, you know, when they drive through Illinois or Missouri, they see row crops where things are planted, you know, in very nice, neat rows, and it's one kind of crop and the whole thing. What would a farm near Cahokia look like, and, and would it even be recognizable to somebody today with our current understanding and belief of what a farm is? You know, that's a very good question because some of the the gardens or the, the um, cultivated areas were not recognized by the Europeans because they didn't conform to the, the row cropping, the plowed and, and monocropped type of, of uh, fields that they were used to. But I think most of them would have been readily recognized as fields. And some of them would have been zoned where you might have had zones purely of, of corn 
and zones purely of, of uh, or zones of corn that are um, surrounded by sunflowers or bordered by squashes or whatever. But at Cahokia, as I uh, stress in my book, there were a suite of crops that that uh, the Europeans would not have been familiar with because they actually fell out of the agricultural system um, after Cahokia was was um, depopulated. And and you mentioned this earlier. Let's go back to what what crops did they grow? What was on, what was on the dinner table for uh, a Cahokian? Uh, dinner or feast? Because you, you you definitely talk about both kind of what they ate every day and then how they did big feasts. So what was yes. what was what was for dinner at that time? Okay, so for dinner was a suite of of crops, including a relative of of quinoa that is was a Midwestern species called Quinopodium berlandieri, and that it was domesticated thousands of years ago, almost four thousand years ago. We have evidence for its local Midwestern domestication, and we find those seeds in great abundance in the archaeological record of Cahokia. So that would have been one of the big crops. Um, sunflower, which everyone is familiar with and which was not lost and is a world crop still today. There was a, a, a squash, an eastern squash, that uh, we probably know the best as uh, in its form of um, a yellow crookneck. And that one was also independently dom- domesticated in eastern North America and was eaten in large quantities. And then there was a, a relative of um, buckwheat, the Asian buckwheat that we call erect knotweed. And that was, uh, again, domesticated here and occurs in, in uh, big caches and very, you know, thousands of, sometimes even tens of thousands or millions of seeds in single sites. There was a relative of sunflower that we call marsh elder or sumpweed that, like sunflower, the wild one has a very small seed, but with selection, it became domesticated here in the Midwest and, and was a was uh, relatively common. There were two grasses, one may grass and one little barley. And all of those would have been on the menu, along with um, a number of things that we don't consider crops, but that grew in the fields and were probably encouraged. Some that were used as, as uh, greens, such as purslane and amaranth. And then there would have been a wide variety of fruits and nuts. And all of these were, um, were managed in a way that their productivity would have been increased. So the fruit and nuts, how much of that was gathered and how much of it was agriculture and farmed? Oh, that's a wonderful question. It's probably um, in the in-between zone where it was uh, a part of the anthropogenic or part of the human landscape so that you would have had uh, fires and other kinds of clearing that would have removed the brush and made individual trees um, more productive. So it, we don't see any signs of, of uh, domestication in, in terms of morphological or genetic change, but it's uh, probably not correct to think of it as just a wild, unmanaged forest. Do, do we know uh, how, what transformation these crops, some of them familiar, some of them very unusual to our modern ears, do we have any idea how they were transformed from harvest to table? in terms of cooking or seasoning? I mean, do we have a, could we recreate these meals? Do we know what this would taste like right now? That's uh, very difficult. And if I had a time machine, that would be the first thing I would want to do is to go and look at the at the cuisine, at the, mm-hmm. at the recipes, and actually taste some of these things because we we don't have uh, direct evidence for that. We, we do have direct evidence for uh, many of the seeds, the large ones and the small ones being uh, uh, parched. So probably when well, they were- What does har- that mean? 
parched. They would have been um, put on a um, on some kind of a um, pot or or some kind of a surface that was subjected to heat from a fire, but okay. but a low, and then stirred around until they were. Um, it would be sort of like popping popcorn, but probably not getting it to be quite that hot. Okay. Um, and then do we do we know, I mean, because when you said squash, I think like how I would like to, I would slice it up and I put it on the grill. <laughs> do they, do, do we have any evidence of how they did, what they did for, for those kinds of, uh, I mean, the grains obviously they probably did something to, but w- what about the, the vegetables that may be a little more familiar to us now? The only thing we can go by is observations in, in historic times. Mm-hmm. And there were uh, numerous ways of eating these these squashes. Sometimes they were picked very small and and uh, young and, and succulent, and they were roasted in the ashes of fires. So that would have been delicious, probably something like you're, you're putting them on the grill. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but and then they ate the flowers. The flowers were harvested and thrown into various soups and stews. And then one of the things they did with the squashes was um, dried them. They cut them into like rings. So if you had a um, acorn squash, for example, and you just sliced it, and then you t- took out the seeds, and then it was dried in the sun, put on a platform and dried in the sun, and then it became like a sort of leathery. And those would last all winter long mm. and could be then taken down from the rafters or wherever they were stored from the storage pits and then again thrown into a soup or a stew along with other grains and and uh, often along with meat. I didn't mention the meat, but of course there was lots and lots of fish at Cahokia and, sure. and access to um, a lot of birds, the migrating waterfowl and other birds and then the, of course the deer. Um, so well, let's go back to the, the production uh, side of this because, you know, we talk about these farms and, and we have to remember that they, they didn't have any machinery. They didn't have beasts of burden. Um, they had some tools. This sounds like a heck of a lot of hard work to farm that much land to feed 40,000 people. Yes, it's true. It was a lot of work. And that's the um, amazing thing is that going by, again, the descriptions of farming at contact, we have very good reason to believe, and in fact, I know of no one who argues or debates this, that the farmers were women. So the women were very strong. They were extremely strong, and they worked very, very hard. And that was, of course, they did many other things besides farm, but farming was probably um, the primary way that they um, they identified and that their their value and their status was, was awarded. So... It, I, 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 I guess it would stand to reason that the women were the primary uh, farmers. Yes. And they were probably the, uh, the primary child rearers. Yes. What the heck did the men do? The men, <laughs> <laughs> the men did a lot. The men uh, were the hunters. Um, I think the men probably did a lot of the fishing. The women and children could have also done some of the fishing. But the, um, the men were the warriors. And through time, we can tell the Mississippians became increasingly um, the level of conflict seemed to have been rising. Mm -hmm. And then um, the men were negotiators. They were probably traders. They may have, although I think women also did trading, and women also went even on the probably the longer-term trading expeditions. That would have been, uh, men would have done that and would have, uh, again, identified as, as traders and negotiators, orators. 
and we'll talk more about the cultural and hierarchical constructs that you discovered through uh, your research and learning about this. When we come back, we need to take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a moment with Gail Fritz, author of Feeding Cahokia, Early Agriculture in the North American Heartland. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jonathan All, and we're here with Gail Fritz, the author of Feeding Cahokia, Early Agriculture in the North American Heartland. Now, let's, Gail, let's go back to, to talking about what we learned about the social structure and the hierarchy of the people at Cahokia based on what you learned on how they grew, grew food and, and what the, the agriculture One of the ways that Cahokian society often gets structured is in terms of a uh, a elites, uh, a ruling elite, sometimes they're called, which would be chiefs and priests and members of their immediate families and commoners. And when that kind of dual um, division is is invoked, the farmers are frequently lumped all together with the commoners. And the um, elites are are frequently seen as having had the the rights to decide who grew what and where they where they got to farm and and how much they had to donate to the um, to the chiefly granaries or or whatever or fees. And I think when you reframe the um, the notion that most women were were um, farmers, maybe a few were chiefs or priests or specialists that didn't get out in the fields very often. But that they um, they transcended all levels of the social order, so that even the the highest um, elites had women who were farmers in their families. So there were um, there were women who were who were very high status, and not all not all farmers were um, were commoners. So I like the uh, to think of that idea that that farming also was a way for for women or or for for family groups either nuclear or pr- probably more likely extended family groups to raise their status if they were extremely industrious and highly productive and were able to furnish large amounts of high quality corn and all the other crops to feasts or to other special events then they would have uh, they would have been um, their status would have would have been uh, upped in that in that situation. So it was a way to to ensure your um, social fluidity. Um, how does that fit in context, uh, comparing to how women fit in that society compared to how women fit in other societies, be them other Native Americans or Europeans or from? Uh, was it was it pretty comparable? Do you think, or do you think that maybe they were a little more advanced in terms of of more for women or less advanced? I think women's status was, in in my mind, it, it would be seen as as a. More as preferable to the Europeans. I th- I think the uh, European society was very different, but I think many of the other Native American societies across Eastern, um, what is now the United States, and even even farther to the West, is comparable in terms of women having extremely high status. The Iroquois and the Cherokee, for example, are famous for. Sometimes they're called matriarchies, or the, the women are are seen as powerful, and as as, as having a, a, a strong strong voice and as serving as as leaders. So this, um, I believe, is needs to be taken in mind when thinking back to to um, Cahokia and other Mississippian societies. 
there's a lot of discussion, debate, research done on what happened at Cahokia and why did the you know what had been probably the biggest settlement in North America. Um, you know, what happened and why did it end up being essentially vacated? Um, a lot of the theories had to do with famine and, and, and food issues, and you just did a book on this. So what, what, what do you believe, based on what you learned, do you think we have any new information that would help us better understand what happened and why the civilization died out? Yes, even since I finished writing the book uh, a few years ago, there has been a lot of new research about uh, climate change that started during or at the end of Cahokia's height. And um, it, it seems pretty clear that Cahokia rose to its prominence during a favorable climatic episode with, with a warm, um, warm winter, not terribly cold winters, and uh, plenty of rainfall and few droughts. And that after that, by m- maybe 1200 AD, that we started getting a higher frequency of, of droughts and then the possibility also of some devastating, one or more devastating floods at that point in time. So um, frequently the authors of these climate change studies say, well, the over-reliance on corn at Cahokia would have been then um, the reason why the Cahokia collapsed because of these climate change that made it impossible to produce the level of crops that had been produced before. And I don't doubt that the climate change studies are, are accurate, but I do think that it's probably a mistake to blame it on over-reliance on corn, not only because there were so many other crops besides corn that were being grown, and some of them were um, probably more, almost certainly more drought-resistant than than corn, but um, also because the way I see it in the um, archaeological record, it's not until after 12 or 1300 AD that really you see the kind of uh, total reliance on, or, or the the extreme reliance on corn that the Europeans uh, found at contact. So it seems to me like corn is actually maybe the savior <laughs> when they that that uh, Cahokian society couldn't be sustained I- anymore, um, possibly because of the stress and the rise in conflict, and that could have all been wrapped up with uh, with climate change, droughts, and things like that. But as as the people moved away, the farmers, again, thinking that the farmers were women, then probably had to pull their fields in closer to the, that's when you see the big palisades going up, and that's when you see all kinds of, even at Cahokia, the palisade went up at 1250 during this period of of increased uh, number of droughts. So... um, you aren't going to have access to spread out across the entire bottom anymore because it's not going to be safe. So you're going to pull your fields in, and then probably it looks like what happened is that they intensified the corn. And that might have accelerated the the uh, uh, the problems if they did more intensifying of, of, of crops over a, a smaller area? It's possible that that happened or else that they just uh, – the, the dream, the big, the big show that was Cahokia just uh, couldn't be repeated anywhere. What, what, based on your research and as as we learn more and more about the Cahokian people, what what is the takeaway here? How does this help us better live where we are now, or how does a better understanding of how they lived, ate, farmed, how does that help us in modern society right now? Well, I think it says a lot for agrobiodiversity. I think it says a lot for. Um, shifting away, at least in, in times and places, from the 
a huge fields that are monocropped in, in corn or, or anything else, any one crop. Um, the type of agriculture known as permaculture is sort of based on the, this high diversity and utilizing a lot of different um, types of, of uh, parts of the landscape. And I think that, um, that, that that's one, one of the things that it should, that the Cahokian model should be a, um, I don't know, a poster child for. But um, the, um, I also think that the, I hope that the, some of these lost crops, like the relative to quinoa and the, the maygrass and the, the um, knotweed that's a relative of a buckwheat, might be able to be re-domesticated, that, that uh, archaeologists and gardeners and, and uh, biologists might be able to come up with then uh, like a local quinoa, something that's better adapted to this, uh, you know, it's not an Andean crop, but better adapted to, to the Midwest and that could be, could be grown locally and, and not, uh, not have such a high carbon footprint as far as being imported from, from South America. And that might, and it's so nutritious, it's uh, equally high in protein and that it might um, actually play a role in food security in this region. Okay, so I, let's. Uh, you said uh, you said nutritious, and that was another thing I was thinking when I was reading your book. Is that it sounded like this was a really good diet. I mean, when they had enough food and when they were at their height, that it was a pretty healthy, uh, pretty healthy plate that they had in front of them every night. I believe that absolutely, and the um, and there isn't a whole lot of evidence for malnutrition or diseases that go along with with uh, with poor diets or even over. Um, over reliance on, on on maize from the from the American bottom area. There are some diseases. There is definitely not a disease free zone, but it's not the kind of of a very unhealthy anemic type of uh, population that that you would uh, that you might expect if it was truly focused so much on corn. So going back to the. Um um, what we learned from this and biodiversity and, and maybe redomesticating some of these crops that were long gone. Do you see that as really even possible with American diets and what we value and what we like and the, the amount of money we expect to pay for food and we, what, what we want our food to look like and what we, uh, the availability that we expect of it, that, that we would actually say, oh, there's this, na- this relative of buckwheat that hasn't been grown for thousand years but we're going to grow it and people will buy it and eat it and they'll love it is that is that practical uh, possibly not <laughs> but i see the especially the the younger generation i see my i see my students and their friends and the the people who run blogs and and uh and e magazines and things like that really getting excited about this whereas when i was younger and was trying to get my my cohort and my colleagues um, excited they could they just rolled their eyes but that's <laughs> not happening with the younger generation they are really carrying it farther and they really can relate to it so i would not rule it out hipster foodies might be the Maybe. Uh, <laughs> may, might be the salvation to to re- reintroduce this kind of eating yeah, but they're also really, really smart, and they're <laughs> they're hard workers. They do eat well. They like to eat well. Um, there's one thing that I, I did want to talk about. Um, can you talk about the the the, the redstone figurines? Because those were yes. really interesting, and 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 I, I I bring those up because you know one of the things that makes it difficult for us to not know as much about. Native American people is they didn't have a form of writing. They didn't, with the exception of some earthen mounds, they didn't build big things that were still here later on. But these redstone figurines were very interesting to me. Can you describe what they were and how they played uh, into the agriculture system? 
Well, I focus on the uh, the female figurines, and the most famous one, the burger, which is called the burger figurine, is kneeling, and she has a um, a hafted hoe, probably stone hoe, in her hand, and she's hoeing the body of what is this, uh, on one side is a snake. It has the head of a, a snake, although it's sort of a cat-like snake. And then it curls around to her back and it bifurcates and becomes um, squash vines. And so it's uh, very much a, a sort of a fertility or, um, type of uh, representation. And lately, some of my colleagues, uh, Carol Diaz-Granados and Jim Duncan and others have, have been looking at the Burger figurine and several of the others that are, that are um, like her that show um, women, clearly women. Sometimes there are burden baskets on their backs or things that look like s- sacred bundles. Um, and sometimes there are vines, plants, sunflowers. Some of them have sunflowers. And they are associating this with a Suan um, deity named um, Old Woman Who Never Dies or Grandmother, an, an Earth Mother figure. And um, we don't think that it's out, it's um, outlandish to project this Earth Mother, um, Grandmother type of, of uh symbolism back into the past. There are so many things on the figurines, on the redstone figurines, and on pictographs, rock art, pictographs and petroglyphs in this area that go along with this interpretation. So... And, and since they didn't, since they didn't have a, a, a huge abundance of these kinds of figurines or this, I mean, Not if they did many. it, if they did it, it must have been really important. Yes, to, these were special. To craft that image yes. of that woman doing that must have been very important to their society. Yes, it would have figured in at extremely important rituals. And um, I think that, again, these, these might have been um, rituals that were performed by women that had to do with, with, uh, um, with farming, with weather, with... Um, World renewal with um, with with just um, with the health of children. Somebody has suggested that these uh, uh, Earth Mother and the the women who were involved in these ceremonies were helping the um, the souls of of uh, children who died young make their way to the afterlife. In, in about the minute or two we have left. Over the course of your career, do you believe that our understanding and maybe the general public knowledge and respect of the Cahokian people have increased? Because it seems like it was a, 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 a civilization that was largely unknown and, and, and didn't get much public attention. Do you think we're getting better about that as time goes on? I do. I believe we're getting better. It still might qualify as one of America's best-kept secrets in terms of uh, not being in the textbooks and um, on the East Coast or the West Coast. But I do think now that um, I know that more and more people are coming to Cahokia, and I believe that it is receiving more attention and more respect. And more research? Is the amount of research on Cahokia keeping pace with what we would need it to be to continue to develop our understanding? Absolutely. There are archaeological um, projects. Some of them are excavations. Some of them are surveys. Some of them are, a lot of them now involve remote sensing, geophysical surveys. And we're learning so much more about Cahokia. There's, yeah, there's a, a, there's not a decline in in research or in new information. Well, and in the last 30, 40 years, the Eurocentric uh, exclusivity of looking at history seems to be changing a little bit anyway, and there seems to be a better un- uh, willingness to try to understand things that are outside of Western Europe and its <laughs> its influence over the world. Is that helping us as well? Absolutely. I agree completely. 
Well, uh, Gail, thank you so much for, for being with us. I want to thank uh, Washington University's Gail Fritz uh, being with us today. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show. And, thank you. And, and, and the, uh, the book, again, is Feeding Cahokia, Early Agriculture in the North American Heartland. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.